completely out of character for him to be not to you know not to be home. He always came home within a quarter of an hour, twenty minutes, unless he had football or unless he had any other activity or you know. Had you ever any inclination that he was in trouble or <clears throat> that he was likely to run away, Mr. No, Kearns, no. Had you any no. indication? No, no. He seemed to get on well at school. We spoke to his teachers; they had no problems with him. At the moment, the Garda are treating this as just another case of a missing child, and literally one of hundreds they get every year. But this case is different, they say, because this child has been missing for almost a week, and normally children who go missing return home after just a night or okay, two. Okay, you're very welcome to uh, Radio Spoil, episode 28. As you would have seen, it's Philip Cairns' timeline, case and analysis. Uh, quickly, yeah. We broadcast in uh, video uh, podcasts, wherever you find them. Um, like, subscribe, you know, alerts, usual nonsense. Let's get on to what you're here for and the case itself. Um, okay. Philip Cairns was born on the 1st of September 1973 and grew up in South Dublin, Ireland. The family moved to a suburb in 1978 called Ballyroan, Rathfarnham. This was when, when Philip was just starting primary school. The 13-year-old schoolboy disappeared in the afternoon of the 23rd of October 1986 while walking back to a, his local secondary school level school, close to Amy, after his lunch break. He never actually returned to school and has never been found after more than 36 years. If he were still alive today, he would be 49 years of age. However, this possibility seems unlikely. A large-scale investigation was carried out, but no physical trace of Philip has ever been found. His disappearance has long been treated as a high-profile child murder case, the only similar incident in Ireland being the murder of young Robert Houlihan, age 11 years, in January 2005, and Philip's case remains one of the most high-profile disappearances in recent Irish history. Across almost 37 years, Philip's family have issued numerous appeals for information. A reconstruction took place in 2007 and was later televised on Irish TV network RTE1, while a reward of €10,000 has been offered. The book, When Heaven Waits, by Emma McEmany, published in 2007, featured an interview with Philip's mother, Alice. Nobody has ever been arrested and the case remains open. Regarding his disappearance, this is words from Brenda Vaughan, former principal of Phillips School, Gloucester Amy and Rathfarnham. The very sad fact is that life went on after we lost Philip. I can remember we all went out and helped with the search. It was the neighbourly thing to do, but after a while you had just to get on with things. Young people I think are more resilient about things like that. They're able to forget more easily and put things behind them. On Garda Síochána, the Irish police, you'll hear, me, you'll hear me refer to Irish police on Garda Síochána, Garda, we're referring to the same things, believe that Philip was abducted and came to harm and a number of suspects have come to light over many years, private and public, without any formal charge. This has been their main working hypothesis. 
Philip Cairns was a relatively quiet, shy boy and grew up in his parents' home, Alice and Philip Sr., with five siblings, a young brother, then age 11, called Owen, and four other sisters, Mary, Sandra, Helen, and Suzanne. Suzanne and Sandra remain active in promoting the cases of missing children and supporting their families. Philip grew up in a very traditional Irish family. He attended prayer meetings on the Legion of Mary and was, like his father, involved with an angling club. He also loved football and hurling, playing an active part in these sports at school. With all that in mind, it is important to place this cold case of a missing child within the context of its time in 1980s Ireland. This is probably one classic case where applying post-2000 hindsight, casual or moral opinion, isn't actually helpful. We must place ourselves back in the time of the 1980s Ireland. This is a very complex cold case and is subject to considerable deficiencies in forensic examination and what I mean is particularly DNA. And in technology and communication we take for granted now with familiar cases. My attempt is to, fle is to flesh out highly relevant detail and importantly focus on what is more possible and plausible rather than what is speculative and just random popular opinion based on what we know now and not what we think we should have known back then. My role in this coming documentary timeline and analysis, like many other cases I've covered, is not to provide concrete and absolute answers, nor muddy the waters with sensational and unfounded claims and accusations, but in an attempt and in an attempt to pass them off as facts. Let's get to the timeline. Okay, so let's get into the timeline. Philip begins Irish secondary school level at age 13. He lives on Ballyrone Road with his parents, one younger brother and four older sisters. His grandmother also lives with the family. At the start of the month, he celebrates his birthday with the family. Philip appears to be adjusting well to the new school making new friends and the weekend before his disappearance he and his father go on one of their regular fishing trips. They are members of an angling club. Thursday the 23rd of October 1986. This is the day of Philip's disappearance. 8 a.m. 9 a.m. It's a normal day in the Cairns household. Philip's senior dad heads off to work in Nestle, a food and drink conglomerate. However, young Philip's sister has a severe toothache. She says she stays home from school and her mother Alice makes arrangements to try and book her a dental appointment later that day. Philip sometimes meets one of his close friends and the cloak to and back from school trips. It is not clear if this happened that day or not. The school is about a 12 minute walk to Clash to Amy in local Rathfarnham. Now. This map just generally gives the locations. You can see the school on the right, his house on the left, and just above that, the alleyway, which we'll refer to later. This is where his school bag would be found six days later. So the house to the school is about 1.1, 1 1.2 kilometers. It's about a, a 
10, 11, 12 minute walk. So at 12.45 p.m. Philip turns to part Colossus Amy at the school and goes home for lunch. This is a regular practice because his house is relatively close to the school. The secondary school students are allowed to go home for lunch one hour but have to be back for lessons at 13.45, p.m. Philip goes home and eats a sandwich. After lunch, he left his home at around 13.25 to 13.30. It's not exactly sure precisely when he left home. He leaves shouting out to his mother and grandmother that he's heading off. School is that 10 or 12 minute walk away from his home. But we now know he never arrives at school. What happened after that is completely unknown. His friend Endicloak later reports to Gardaí, the Irish police, that he did not see him on his journey back to the school. But that isn't always unusual. They live very close by. It just depends on timing and whether Ender goes home for lunch himself. This is important because no one else on the way to school reports seeing Philip on the journey or at school. I think it's reasonable to conclude that if Philip was abducted, it happened very soon after he left his driveway. Philip normally gets home from school direct sometimes around 4pm or just after, unless he has school activities. He doesn't appear at that time, but no one in the house is necessarily alarmed. Sometimes there are after school activities or he walks home with friends, gets talking to them, you know, 5 to 5.30 p.m. Philip Sr., his dad, gets home from work at Nestle. He assumes, not seeing Philip, that he might have met up with a friend after school. Alice, Philip's mother, arrives back at the house with one of his older sisters. They had, had attended a dental appointment late in the day. She is a lot more concerned. She begins phoning and calling to neighbours. She eventually learns that Philip never arrived back for his lessons at school in the afternoon. She also reaches out to Enda Cloak and his family. Enda's dad is a Garda, and they are also concerned. There were actually a number of pupils at Gloucester with parents who worked for the Garda in the Ballyrome, Ballyboden, Talla and Raffalum areas. 6.30 to 7pm. Alice formally reports her concern to police that Philip is missing. It is already a cold and dark October evening. She knows something is wrong. Friday the 24th of October 1986. Despite concerned efforts, it is only on Friday morning that a full orchestrated guardie search for Philip begins. So often, precious errors have been lost. Across the following days, the community mobilises and searches begin in the surrounding neighbourhoods and later into local parks and foothills of the Dublin mountains around Rathfarnham. This weekend was the start of the October bank holiday weekend and the children were entering a midterm break the following week. There are multiple rumours in the community that maybe Philip left of his own accord and that colloquially he mitched off from school. But this would be completely out of character for young Philip. Another rumour that he might be on a weekend holiday with another school friend on a fishing trip. But the rumours all appear to ignore the unthinkable. That Philip has not disappeared on his own whim. And is not a young lad likely to do so 
there is no activity on his post office savings account of £40. <coughs> Philip's dad tells Gardy that they even had plans to go fishing again that weekend. Nothing makes sense to the police or the family. We're moving from Saturday to Monday. The Monday would be the bank holiday, October the 27th, 1986. A Gardy missing person alert is released over the weekend, but media attention on the case really only picks up after the bank holiday weekend in the news, news, news streams. Now, it's a concern. We're moving to Wednesday, the 29th of October. The following Wednesday, Philip's school bag is located by two 18-year-old girls in an alley laneway close to the house around 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Ola O'Carroll and Catherine Hassett are aware of the local missing boy. The lane had previously been searched by police and the bag was not there at that time. One of the two girls stated that she'd been in the laneway earlier that day and the school bag was not there. The school bag holds potential clues, but nothing is known of how it came to be in the lane. It is thought the bag had been left there a short time previously and shows no dampness from rain on the night before. The girls see a name tag on the bag and wonder if it is the missing boy. They bring it to Raffarnham Station. I think they also had a conversation. I think one of the girls said to the other, um, Oh no. That says um, uh, Philip C, or, and and his name is Cairns, and and this was the thing, Cairns. She believed that Cairns it should begin with a K, but of course Cairns was spelt with a C, C A I R N S, and not the more familiar K E A R N S. The bag is found in a laneway that links Anne Devlin Road to the drive. A short walk from where Philip lives on Ballyrone Road. But the puzzle is that it is not actually on his route to school. And you, you'll see that from the map. And the bag shows no signs of exposure to the cold or rain over the past few hours. Even if it was left overnight. Let alone a full six days. Now the below image I'm going to show you here. I've read out all this. I'll check this out. This is... Sunset time <coughs> for Dublin, Ireland on Wednesday the 29th of October 1986. In other words, the two girls found the school bag in darkness in the lane at 7 to 8 p.m. that night. It is always a question I've had. The public was presented with the school bag in situ, in daylight. So these public images and videos are either part of a reconstruction and the girls handed the bag into police that evening. We know that that's what they did. That was their intention and that's what they did. But my question will be, was it returned to the alley location or a similar dummy bag was chosen to be used for the construction, the reconstruction? And I'm not clear on that. Either way, we seem to have from evidence of photos in the media multiple handling and cross dna of the bag by people after the discovery the bag is examined forensically but no clues are located philip's school things are found inside including pens pencils copy book maths books 
school journal is a pencil case, but some of Philip's books appear to be missing that he should have had for lessons that day, including a geography book and a religion book. A later forensic examination will produce no clues as to Philip's whereabouts. Gardy only then sealed the bag and it continues to be locked in a safe for further analysis. Let's just take a look at this. Gardy and detectives are now involved in the search for 13-year-old Philip Kearns. And after nearly eight days, they are still mystified as to his whereabouts. The Gardy leading the hunt here at Farm say they are completely baffled as to who left his school bag in the lane just a half a mile from his home last night. Philip's school bag was discovered by two 18-year-old girls who were walking through the laneway which links Anne Devlin Road and Anne Devlin Park. The Gardaí are satisfied that the bag had just been placed there a short time earlier. The discovery of the bag is the only breakthrough so far in the mystery surrounding the disappearance of Philip Kearns. Okay, so you can see the, you know, it's, it's very obvious. These are all very staged photographs, an evidence bag, the school satchel is in it. That's fine, that's great, it's sealed up. But yet, yeah, here's another media photo. Garda officer touching the bag. I don't know whether this particular bag is the actual evidence bag or this is some kind of dummy bag that's been used to just demonstrate for a reconstruction at later stages. If it's not, this is horrendous. Even at that time, 1986, horrendous handling of evidence. It may not be and that's fair enough if this is um, not the case and this is just a dummy bag used to demonstrate. Now before I go on uh, regarding DNA, I want to just explain very briefly and quickly single to mixed DNA. Single DNA is where a piece of evidence is tested and it's very clear a singular piece of DNA is on the evidence that can be directly proven someone who touched that piece of evidence. Mixed DNA where a piece of evidence has been subjected to multiple handling. Uh, at that time in 1986 it wasn't possible to extract a definitive single DNA where a bag because it, it you know, it's to do with forensic cross, cross contamination of each DNA's evidence on the bag. However, we do know now, this was 1986, remember, we didn't even have proper DNA forensic evidence back then. In the, it was really only into the 90s that we started to have it developed, particularly into the 2000s. And now, we understand globally it is possible that forensic institutions can actually examine a piece of evidence with mixed DNA, and cases have been solved by this, where a single DNA sample can actually be extracted and matched up to a particular person. I don't know whether Gardy in this case have pushed this out and tested this internationally with institutions that can do this. 
that remains an open question for me. Let's push on. Thursday, October the 30th, checkpoints, local screening is carried out. Pupils and teachers at Clash to Ain are interviewed by Gardaí. This is at now at the time where the school bag has been found. I've learned in sub subsequent years that many of the uh, pupils of the school and teachers were asked if people if Philip missed school or mitched off classes. In other words, had he got a record of mitching off classes? Uh, mitching off classes, by the way, is it, absconding from school, not going to school when he should be in school. Who were his best friends? Um, and some teachers of learned were not even in, properly interviewed by police. It seems completely counter to the working hypothesis that the police were presenting publicly in press conferences the hypothesis of abduction and public appeals at the time. A case of alluding to an abduction but attempting to unearth some reason or evidence of Philip gone missing by his own means. And that seems to be what was maybe happening here in the early stages, that the police were almost looking for a reason not to go down the abduction road, although deep down they knew that that was probably the case. Their appeal for assistance, the Gardaí say they are no nearer to solving the mystery of Philip Kearns' whereabouts. But after so long do they now fear for his life. Keeping a very open mind in it, we have no evidence to show or any reason to believe that he is dead. But uh, we are mindful of the fact that he is now absent since the 23rd of uh, October without trace. But what of the speculation that Philip may have been abducted by a religious sect? And uh, his mother, we do know, and his family are deeply religious people. And uh, they practice the, the Catholic uh, religion uh, to uh, a degree that manifested itself by attending uh, meetings and, and uh, vigils and attending their religious uh, duties uh, in a very positive way. Now, the, uh, other than that, we have no evidence to show or reason to believe again that he would have been abducted by any religious sector, that he would have gone by his own volition to join any religious sector. But after all this time, what is the feeling of the Kearns family about Philip's disappearance? After eight weeks not knowing what's happening or what's happened, it's the uncertainty and it makes life very, very difficult. After eight weeks, do you think that Philip is still alive? Or do you think that hope is slipping away at this stage? Um... I'm still hoping, but I'm very, very worried at this point. I have to keep hoping, otherwise I just couldn't carry on. On next Thursday, Philip Kearns will be two months missing from his home in Rathfarnham. But today, the Gardaí are no nearer resolving the mystery of his disappearance. Despite all the speculation in the case, the men leading the investigation are still keeping an open mind as to whether young Philip is dead or alive. Irish police will ultimately conclude that the school by turning up in the locale almost a week later is confirmation of an abduction and likely deliberate distraction from what actually occurred that lunchtime. But again, why were some of the officers who lived in or around the surrounding area so dedicated to the theory 
of an absconded child and less willing to investigate locals in the area or who frequented the area with a criminal history still holding respected positions in the community, clubs and authorities. November 1986, Gardy doubled down on their belief that it must be an abduction and whoever did this is very familiar with the area. However, publicly, they avoid stating such a case despite significant door-to-door searches and inquiries. A public reconstruction on the 18th of November of Philip's last movements is also broadcast on Irish National TV. But behind the scenes, Gardy had actually scaled down their investigation to just 12 staff members and detectives once the initial ground search had been completed. We move on. We're now more than three years after the case, 1989. A 29-year-old man was prosecuted for falsely claiming that Phillips' remains were under the Lansdowne Valley housing estate. In October the same year, the Sunday Independent newspaper conducted an investigation into Phillips' disappearance and concluded that he had been abducted and killed by a local man he knew and respected who had offered him a lift back to school. 87 to 1999, a 12-year period. Numerous lines of inquiry are eliminated, from sightings around Ireland to a boy in the UK, Manchester, from Ireland claiming to be Philip Cairns. That included various lines of inquiry, the Manchester, UK runaway boy, another stocking lane uh, car um, sighting, two men with large plastic bags dumping it in a local site, a builder on the way back to work seeing a boy taking, uh, talking to a man in a car, a wine coloured car in the area, numerous search locations for a body. By 1994, Irish police released a generated computer photo of what Philip would look like at the age of 21. Now frankly, this guard appeal baffled me when it was long understood their primary hypothesis was an abduction and Philip was no longer alive. Again, it's another counter-narrative in the police investigation. It wrongly appeared to give Philip's family false hope amid growing evidence by witnesses and tip-offs that something nefarious had occurred and it involved some person or persons from the wider community where Philip lived. 1995. In 1995, Lotto winner James Conley offered a reward for information into Philip's disappearance. Mr. Coley stated that he had been told by a witness that Philip had got into a parked car. He suggested that Philip's death might have been linked to sexual abuse. 2002. A man dialed 999 and confessed to murdering Philip. He sounded drunk as though he was ringing from a pub. He is never traced by police. The News of the World reported that an investigation into Philip's death carried out by a number of private investigators on their own account had identified a paedophile group as perpetrators. They had heard from a drug dealer who did business with a member of the group that they had killed Philip and buried his body on a development site. The Sunday Independent reported that a reliable source had told them that Philip had been sexually abused and murdered in order to prevent him talking about the abuse and that his body had been dumped in a pond on the former grounds of Loretto Abbey, Rathfarnham. 
<laughs> However, this was strongly disputed by the Sunday Times, which quoted Garrity as saying that there was no evidence of paedophile link to Philip's death and there were no ponds on the grounds of Loretto Abbey. Unfortunately, there were a number of ponds on Loretto Abbey grounds at the time of Philip's disappearance. Where these investigations went, I really don't know. And what the Gardaí were doing and the flow of information was poor at this stage many years after the disappearance. We're at 2006, October. A fresh appeal 20 years after his disappearance. Huge response, but no concrete leads. 2007, again, October. Another appeal. Crime Watch and another large response, but no concrete leads. However, one woman does come forward claiming to be a former partner of the man who killed Philip Cairns, who had confessed to her the crime. Two years later, two searches were carried out on the lands of the Grange Golf Club or Farnham on foot of a tip-off from this woman. But it's not clear if it was the same woman or another woman. This kind of pattern repeated itself over the years. May 2009, stretch of private wooded South Dublin land near Grange Golf Club were back again. Raffarnham off the M50 motorway is searched by investigators. On May the 6th, the search area is sealed off and vegetation cleared. Specialist equipment and fingertip examination techniques are used in an attempt to detect evidence of soil movement. Later that month, a second search is carried out around 50 metres away. This follows reports from an elderly woman from Dublin who told Gardaí that Cairns was murdered and later buried at both sites. Both sites? I don't think so. She said that a man she was in a relationship sometime before had confessed to his killing. Despite the involvement of geophysicists, the searches both proved to be a failure. The man in question is now a pensioner who lives in Raffarnham and cannot be charged due to lack of evidence. Oh boy, where are we going with this case? So many leads and so much talk. 2011, another appeal for information. A woman A contacts tentatively, but then recuses herself. She had claimed she's been one to throw the bag into the laneway under instructions from a third party. 2014, in July, Philip Cairns' father dies. He will never know the answer to his son's disappearance. May 2016, once again, following many renewed appeals to the public and continued investigation, a woman contacted Gardy to tell them she suspected former DJ and convicted paedophile Emmett Cook of having killed Philip Cairns. Gardy questioned Cook and he was reported to have confirmed some details but not to have revealed the location of Philip's body. Emma Cook died in 2016. The victim of Cook, C, being counselled by Angela Copley, a well-respected therapist who deals with child abuse and its long-term effects, tells her that a girl was forced to dump Philip Cairns' bag in the alleyway a week after his disappearance by Emma Cook. A is contacted again, although nothing of what she said did is known. It is also not known if A and C are the same person or not. Gardy also talked to C, 
see previous about where or not she is also A. It is also possible that B is the girl who was forced to dump the bag, but that is not the public domain not not in the public domain at the moment. There are so many A's, B's and C's. People popping their heads up over their railings. Yeah, I, I know something, you know. And then suddenly duck back down again when they're pushed to make formal statements and proper accusations. And therein is the problem we have in this case. People popping their heads up over the garden wall and popping their heads back down. June 2016. We're back again. Social counsellor Angela Copley says that there is quite a, a bit of crossover. Yeah, you can say that again. A bit of crossover between the victims of Bill Kearney, a paedophile priest who was active in the region and paid off with the church to leave the priesthood without being arrested. He was eventually arrested in London 30 years later. And the victims of Eamon Cook, including the wife, was abused by Carney. Suspicions are raised about a paedophile ring active in the region at the time. You don't say. Around the time of this investigation, an anonymous caller, oh, another one, came forward to Gardy naming a specific local man. The caller subsequently ceased contact and could not be traced. It is still not clear whether the local man was ever questioned and ruled out, of course not. Miss Copley was referred to in an Irish in an Irish article published by Maeve Sheehan and Paul Williams in the Sunday Intent on Sunday, June twelfth. This girl rang me. She rang me periodically. She was a victim of Eamon Cooks and I was trying to help her get on with her life. During the conversation she came out with this. She told me that a girl threw Philip Cairns at school back in the lane and that Eamon Cook had given it to her to do it. That year, 2016, Eamon Cook dies of cancer in a prison hospice after his previous, uh, one of his previous many convictions. August 2016. It is announced publicly that DNA samples taken from Philip's uh, school bag do not match Eamon Cook, but he was still not ruled out as a suspect. Gardy also seek to identify two people who may have left Philip's school back in the laneway in Ballyrone, close to his home and school. Well, hello. I've already named the two girls that found the school bag in the lane. How difficult is it to contact those two girls? I can do it today, tomorrow, in an hour. We closed the main timeline of Philip Cairns in 2016. And you may ask why. Well, that's pretty much the most subsequent information we have over the years. Everything after 2016 are just complete nonsense rehashes of what we already know. So this is kind of a second part of the investigation. You've heard the name, Eamon Cook. We're now on to who is Eamon Cook, what he's about, what's going on, why is he connected to this case. Eamon Cook was one of the original pirates. Now he's up the mast again with his eye on a prize, a successful constitutional challenge to the 1988 Broadcasting and Wireless Telegraphy Act. In the meantime, by continuing to broadcast, he's facing the possibility of fines of up to £20,000 and or two years in prison. We're not defined a lot. Our position is we feel the new Broadcasting Act 
violates the Constitution. And we've brought it before Justice Hamilton in the High Court, and he agrees that there is a case to answer and I set down uh, that we must serve plenary summonses on Ray Burke and Sean Connolly in the Commission within 10 days. Better Music Radio Dublin so 253 Medium Wave and 101684. At the same time, the government's going ahead with applying the sanctions of that act to him. To start with, prohibition orders have been served on Telecom Erin and the ESB to cut off his phones and power. He plans to fight these through the courts as well. And according to one constitutional lawyer, he stands a chance of getting an injunction to prevent such action while his constitutional case is being heard. Indeed, one that would prevent any punitive action against him, his employees or his advertisers. Of course, if Radio Dublin gets such an injunction, all the other pirates will claim similar exemptions and the floodgates will be opened. Certainly, many of the other illegals have already come to Mr. Cook's aid. The Concerned Independent Broadcasters Association represents about 35 pirates. They're backing the Cook action. Well, the association's pressing for licenses now for those who've applied, with an appeal to let the broadcasting start immediately and sort out the details later. That the department says it's not going to grant. But if the illegals don't get back on the air through injunctions, it looks as if many of them will come back anyway. 30 of its members plan to start broadcasting again next week, come what may. Whatever the motives of other stations, Mr Cook claims he's spearheading the campaign not for money, but for principle. He says he's prepared to bleed for financial. Well, are you going to fight to the bitter end to the last penny? Yes. Simple answer, yes. Even if you don't believe that Eamon Cook had anything to do with the disappearance of Philip Cairns, he remains a perfect predatory suspect and an example of men at the time in Dublin, in the areas of the greater Dublin area and Wicklow, who preyed upon women and boys. In the case of Eamon Cook as a prime suspect in this case, Emma Cook was born in Kimmage, South Dublin, but soon moved with his family to Glasnevin on the north side of the city. Uh, I think he was born in 1936. He trained as an electrician after he left school and worked for the ESP and Dublin Corporation. But in the late 1960s, he'd established an, an electrical repair shop. He became fascinated with radio and CV communication and soon pursued a nighttime hobby of monitoring the Irish police as they were dispatched to college. Travelling late at night in his uh, distinctive Jaguar car, he could often arrive at the scene of fires and break-ins before the police themselves even arrived. Already known to police due to his criminal record, he became known as something of a, an amateur vigilante. By the late 1960s, in particularly 1969, Irish police formally ascribed him with a radio communication and Garda file, a Garda file code name of Alpha Seven. Cook operated in non-criminal and Irish Republican circles for many years, and several former officers of Garda Síochána have described him as something else, as a an informant and a bit of a loose cannon. As eventual owner of the private radio station Radio Dublin, he went by the name. Captain Cook, on the airwaves and among his staff. Having first gotten involved with Radio Dublin in 1973 as an engineer, he assumed full ownership of the station in 1977, which had been operating for over a decade under various different owners. 
and Cook established the operation as a limited company based in Cardiff. He continued to operate the radio station until some months before its closure in 2003. Despite numerous but highly intermittent raids by the authorities on the station in which large amounts of equipment were seized, he was only successfully prosecuted for broadcasting offences on one occasion for which he received a £35.35 fine. To conceal his private operations, Cook over many years moved his broadcasting studio around Dublin from rented holdouts to private accommodation he owned where he lived. For a number of years he bought land in the Dublin mountains near a place called Stepaside and sunk a 20 foot shipping container into the ground to hide his radio transmitter and equipment, particularly after raids, a word that a raid was about to occur on his studio. Cook was married three times and is believed to have up to seven children of varying ages. Now, record. In 1952, an unnamed teenager, aged 16, and believed to be Eamon Cook, was sentenced to 12 months of probation after a bomb attack on a monument in Glasnevin Cemetery in Dublin, just a short distance from where he lived. 1957, Cook is sentenced to five years penal servitude after he pleaded guilty to shooting at four Gardaí during an attempted robbery at a petrol station near Brer County, Wicklow. The attempted murder charge was downgraded to a lesser offence. I'm not going to read these. You can pause and read through what I'm passing through here. Uh, one must be aware of YouTube strikes and what have you. Cook continue, 1960s, Cook continues his nighttime escapades as an amateur vigilante. 1978. In March this year, Cook is convicted in the Dublin District Court of a breach of the 1926 Wireless Tele Telegraphy Act following raids on its private radio station in January and February 1996. Cook, along with four other accomplices, is convicted of assault and arson in relation to a 1994 firebombing incident and received a four-year suspended sentence. The other four men were charged in connection with the firebomb attack. They were Gerard McMullen, 40, of Ballyfermot Drive, Eugene Gagan, 40, of Donard Avenue, Blackhorse Avenue, Alan Callaby, 33, Ballyfermot Drive, and George Snedden, 33, of Glentow Road, Whitehall. Court records also reveal that Cook then had five previous criminal convictions. Cook, 49, <coughs> of 58 in Chicago pleaded guilty conspiring to assault John Paul O'Toole, a former Radio Dublin employee, and was given a four-year suspended sentence. For this offence, he appeared in court just two days before the disappearance of Philip Cairns. 1986 to 1989, he challenges new broadcasting acts to undermine the explosion of private radio stations.
Taken by Mr. Eamon Cook, Managing Director of the illegal radio station Radio Dublin, which employs 22 staff. Mr. Cook was seeking an injunction preventing the closure of illegal radio stations as required under the Broadcasting Act at midnight tomorrow night. In court, counsel for Mr. Cook argued that the requirement of a licence to broadcast and the limiting of such licences was an unjustified interference in the freedom of expression and of communication as guaranteed under the Constitution. Council further argued that such provisions were an unjust attack on the right of a citizen to carry on a business of his choice, and he said such provisions had as their object the prevention and distortion of competition. Refusing an injunction, the President of the High Court, Mr Justice Liam Hamilton, said it would be an unwarranted interference by the judiciary with the functions of the Oireachtas. However, Mr Justice Hamilton said a number of important issues had been raised and he gave leave to appeal the constitutionality of a number of the Broadcasting Acts. And he said such action should be taken at the earliest possible date. Mr Eamon Cook, who took the action, said he was pleased with the outcome, but he said he would continue to broadcast on medium wave. Tonight, a number of stations, including Sunshine 101, Super Q and BLB, are closing down in advance of tomorrow's deadline. 2001. Cook is jailed for six months for dangerous driving and 21 days for contempt of court in relation to a car chase in the Dublin mountains. The full details of this case are not known to me and why Irish police pursued him. It's too easy to indulge in wild speculation, but it does not challenge the mind too much to know that Gardaí were likely tracking and following Cook's movements in relation to his broadcasting breaches for many years. Perhaps if they knew the revelations in the years to come, they might have realised there were far greater reasons to track and monitor Cook's movements and activities. <clears throat> With revisions to the Broadcasting Act and establishment of new licensing independent radio stations with greater commercial support, Cook increasingly found it difficult to keep his private Radio Dublin station going. As more and more came to light about Cook's activities and behaviour with young girls and boys, his entire staff resigned their roles. Radio Dublin eventually ceased broadcasting operations in May 2003. And in 2003, in the same year, his radio station ceases broadcasting. Cook's first trial in relation to sex offences began. He was eventually convicted of the attempted rape and indecent assault of four girls. This conviction was later quashed due to a technicality and he was released in 2006. 2007, he was put on trial again this year, age 71, when two complainants from the previous trial were witnesses. He had threatened and bribed the victims who nicknamed him the Cookie Monster. Cook pleaded not guilty to all 42 charges against him, which covered dates from the mid, -19, the mid to late 1970s. Garda Inspector Gerald Kelly testified that Cook had eight previous convictions, including one for arson, which we know about, on the home of one complainant from the 2003 trial. He was found guilty and sentenced to 10 years imprisonment with prison authorities to take into account the 1,300 days he had served due to a previous conviction. 2015, Cook applied for an appeal for his conviction on a point of law, but it was denied. 2016, realising Cook is 
in a hospice. Gardy interview him in relation to his possible involvement in the disappearance and murder of Philip Cairn. This follows a hot darn tip by a woman, nine years of age at the time, 1986, who believed she saw Philip at Cook's home when the boy was assaulted. He was struck and bloodied by a blunt object, but the nine-year-old has trouble in remembering all the details so traumatic was the event witnessed. The social worker, I've named her, supporting victims of Eamon Cook, revealed to media that she understands Gardy were aware of this event and the allegations as far back as 2011 when the woman first came forward. Following Eamon Cook's death in June 2016, it is revealed that Cook referred to the case of Philip Cairns in private, unpublished documents. That he had spent time, up to a year, searching in the Dublin mountains for the boy. Interview transcripts appear to indicate that Cook knew details of the case not known to the public at the time of the disappearance when he wrote about them. However, these have been contested due to Cook's own fascination with the case at the time and increasing onset of dementia when he was interviewed. So, let's move to my conclusion and analysis. I said at the outset this was a complex case. We must place ourselves back in the culture and the time of the case. This isn't just a case of a missing 13 year old that goes to the core of attitudes and practices by those in authority at the time. A distinct unwillingness by police force to ruffle feathers in a community where their own members lived. We must remember that every month or two in Ireland at the time there were many allegations and scandals that involved members of the public, church, politics and community should have been above misbehaviour and the seedier side of life. But these were times when a murder, let alone a child abduction, were not commonplace. When they did happen, they consumed news media for weeks and months on airwaves and in print. So what's the possibility that Philip disappeared and there was no nefarious involvement? This seems highly improbable. While Philip was a bright and intelligent kid into school and sports, he was quiet and shy and relied heavily on adults and peers around him for direct guidance, practical and spiritual. He had no previous history of being a rebel, more someone who went along with the crowd, even lacking a little streetwise sense other robust kids around him might have had. simply doesn't fit the profile of a runaway or someone able to survive outside his family support and friends. This was an area where Philip had lived in since the age of four and he knew it very well. The possibility of a simple accident or getting lost seems highly implausible. <coughs> the local rivers were thoroughly searched and almost every reported sighting of Philip over the weeks and months after his disappearance were followed up and discounted. From sightings in Dublin to Tipperary to London to Manchester. Was Philip abducted by one or more people? There are overwhelming factors to support the abduction hypothesis. Notwithstanding no physical trace of him has ever been found. If it is someone who knew him directly or knew of him. He would be considered a primary and vulnerable target. Shy, easy and predictable. Not a child willing to break the rules or willing to take risks with strangers. His mother Alice is adamant that Philip would never have willingly 
got into a car with a stranger. Philip Cairns was abducted by someone he knew or someone who knew of him so well from afar through family members or friends that they might have been able to convince him he or she was a family friend or confident someone to trust. The circumstances of this case led me to believe that this that he was abducted by someone he knew and was fully aware or briefed about his daily activities and movements. While I cannot absolutely rule out passing optimism and opportunism by a skilled stranger, this seems less likely, unless they could convince Philip that they knew a great deal about him. But I still don't consider or classify those kinds of strangers as opportunists. They do their groundwork, infiltrate communities, parishes and clubs and slowly gather information about their predatory target. Philip disappeared in broad daylight at lunchtime when even a suburban area like Farnham had adults and kids coming back and forward to work and school for lunchtime. This is the biggest oddity in the case that no one spotted him and recognised him or are willing to divulge details of their sighting. <coughs> no one actually witnessed his abduction after 1.30pm. If it was, it may be for reasons I've given above and not have seemed like an abduction to them and drawn any particular attention. Looking at the locale, the short 12 minute trip to a school, I think a reason to conclude that Philip Cairns was abducted very, very soon after he turned out of his garden driveway and it is highly likely that the mode of transport was a car or van. Now abducting Philip on foot would draw too much attention unless it was someone who lived very very close by and would have sanctuary and cover somewhere. On balance, without further attention, it seems more likely that Philip either knew his abductor and would be willing to step inside a vehicle fearing no danger. Someone already had his trust in their pocket and abused it. This wasn't an abductor struggling with a child along the street against his will. In the intervening years and case aftermath, former Dublin-based and retired detective Jerry O'Carroll, who was involved in the case, has poured cold water and wild speculation that Philip was abducted by some religious or satanic sect. Indeed, he has even recounted details of spending a night in the Dublin mountains after a trip at a tip-off from the public hotline that Philip was to be sacrificed at a well-known derelict location. Bizarre as the tip sounded, and many others at the time, O'Carroll and his Garda colleagues felt obliged to follow up every possible line of inquiry, wild or implausible. Again, at the outset of this episode, I reminded our audience that Ireland was a very different place in the 1980s. The idea of a 13-year-old boy being a member of the Legion of Mary attending prayer meetings and being brought up in a traditional Catholic household should be held in the context of its time, not used as fuel and speculation for wild theories of satanic and religious sects as a basis to park anti-religious rhetoric. Yes, the brutal truth is that many predators used religions, religious orders and traditional-minded communities to hide their activities and abuse of young and vulnerable hoping that the Iron Shield of Protection and Community Standing would also protect them. And there is strong circumstantial evidence 
that was happening at the time in and around the case of missing Philip Cairns. My final thought, while an understandable part of this episode has to deal with the activities of Eamon Cook, it shouldn't distract from the reality that he may not be directly responsible for the abduction and murder of Philip Cairns, rather one piece of a larger and wider circle of active predators known to him and they to him. Cook, in his private documents and notes, may have been fascinated with the case of Philip Cairns for all the wrong reasons, but I find it hard and implausible that he could abduct a child he did not know in broad daylight, bring them back to his bustling radio studio home, abuse, harm and kill them in a house with a wife and 11 children and multiple staff members coming and going 24 hours a day. To do that, you would need multiple and willing accomplices. <coughs> if Eamon Cook is directly or indirectly involved in the abduction and death of 13-year-old Philip Cairns in 1986, then it happened with the coercion and or assistance of others knowingly within the Philip's local community. The key to this case remains with the people who knew Philip outside his family home in the school, church, prayer and sporting clubs and groups he frequented. Outside of Cook himself, there remains two people of notable interest known to Irish police and under the cold case team watch, and significantly known to Philip at the time, a parish priest and an organiser of local community activities, and another who was a member of the local prayer group and Dublin Sea Anglers Club both of which Philip was a member of. I'm also hoping that investigators will take up the offer from international forensic institutions who now say they have the ability to examine an object from a crime scene, in this case school bag, and extract single DNA profiles over and above mixed profiles. But that offer has to be taken up to present answers. There should be no hiding in this case. We all want resolution to a case, no more than the Cairns family, but the onus remains with members of Philip's immediate community at the time to come forward with information that allows Irish police to act with substance. Not here saying village rumours, but on Garda Siakana also have a duty of care to the law-abiding members of that community, then and now, even when it means exposing members of their own force for protecting the very people who do not deserve that protection. Thank you for joining me on this latest episode of Radio Spoil. I will of course do an update in this case should the need arise. Take care. God bless. We'll see you soon. Treasured family memories of a more innocent time in this country. Philip Kearns was the second youngest of six children. He has four older sisters and one younger brother, himself now 31 years old. We used to play... Um football with with each other against each other um, in our back garden and uh, Philip used to play hurling for the local GAA team. He was my best friend being so close as we were in age. Like Christmas uh, birthdays and all that, you know, I mean family occasions, uh, weddings and, and, and whatever else is that. We, we kind of think, you know, I mean, at the back of our mind, we're like we know that Philip would be here, you know what I mean? Always having to, to look back really, you know what I mean, to think, you know what I mean, well, you know, if, if if only Philip was here, really, some.